Chapter 18 A History of California, the Spanish Period. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 The Pacification of Sonora. The strategic center in Galvez's plans, even for the settlements in Alta California, was the province of Sonora, near the frontiers of which the future capital of the Commandancy General was designed to be placed. That province had been reduced to sad straits as a result of nearly twenty years of continuous war. The population had seriously declined. For example, Primaria Alta, which had had 1,315 civilized inhabitants in 1763, fell away to 178 in 1769. Even southern Sonora had been affected. Prior to the Pima Revolt of 1751, there had been 57 settled ranches in the Ostamuri district. Two decades later, there were only four. In the rest of Sonora, over 40 mining settlements had been deserted, and but two out of a prior number of 125 ranches still had white inhabitants. The presence of the Jesuits in the province had not served to check disorder after the suppression of the Pima Revolt. Indeed, the constant bickerings between them and the other white elements only increased the evil of the times, especially since the missionaries had now lost all control over the Indians. It was therefore an advantage to the province when they were supplanted by the Franciscans of the colleges of Queretaro and Jalisco. The expulsion of the Jesuits in 1767 took place without warning in Sonora, as elsewhere, with the result that it was not until 1768 that their successors arrived. The Queretarian friars took over Primeria, and the Jaliscans received the rest of Sonora, while Sinaloa was put in charge of the secular clergy. Henceforth, the religious were to exercise only spiritual jurisdiction. The friars were not satisfied with this arrangement, but at any rate, whether due to the change or not, there was a cessation, for a while, of revolts by Christianized Indians. It remained to deal with the hostile tribes of the unconverted and to introduce the settlers who should maintain permanent peace. Galvez had entertained the highest hopes of the outcome of Elizondo's campaign. That officer and his army of more than a thousand men were expected in short time to pacify Sonora and then pass on to Nueva Vizcaya to deal with the Apaches. In other words, a successful military campaign was to be the indispensable preliminary to the inauguration of Galvez's project of the Commandancy General. Julian de Arriaga, the enlightened Secretary of the Indies in Spain, and the King were among those who were not sanguine of the success of Galvez's plan, and the event proved that they were right. Footnote. Julian de Arriaga, Secretary of the Indies from 1750 or 1751 to 1776, is one of the figures in the background of California history who has yet to receive the attention that is due his achievements. Spain's great 18th-century spurt in the northwestward conquest came during his rule, and the decline followed immediately upon his death in 1776. In footnote. Elizondo reached Guaymas on March 10, 1768, 
and soon afterward made an attack on the Indian enemies, Ceres and Pimas, in that vicinity. The latter fled to the mountain fastnesses of the Cerro Prieto, where it was impossible to pursue them, though a ten-day search was made. In June, the Spaniards attacked the Cerro Prieto from three sides, but the Indians eluded them. The same thing happened when another attempt was made in October, and then again in November. Royal orders of November and December called for a cessation of these expensive campaigns and for the use of conciliatory methods, but Croix and Galvez were too deeply committed to draw back and found an excuse to allow the war to go on. The Spaniards were nothing if not persistent, for they assaulted the Cerro Prieto for a fifth time in February, but without result. After a year's campaign, virtually nothing had been accomplished. As late as February 1769, while he was still in Baja California, Galvez was giving orders for a war of extermination against the rebellious Indians. But by the time of his arrival in Sonora in May, he had learned of the royal orders and decided to try the effects of an offer of amnesty. A period of 40 days from May 8th was given in which the Indians might surrender, and it was intimated that they would suffer dire consequences after that date if they neglected the opportunity. The 40 days passed, but few Indians accepted the edict. Then 10 more days were added, and later another 25, but the Indians remained hostile. Galvez had, meanwhile, been attending with more or less success to some of the minor projects in preparation for the Commandancy General. What he might have done if he had retained his health can only be conjectured. It is more than likely that he would have found a way to overcome obstacles, just as he had in sending out the Alta California expeditions, and would have brought about an advance to the Gila and Colorado rivers and the establishment of communications with Monterey. If that is so, it is well for the ultimate possessor of California, the United States, that Galvez fell desperately ill. Early in June, he began to develop fever and chills, and he was not wholly well again until after he had left the frontier. Before he was at his worst, however, he directed several other attacks against the Indians, one of them in October being another fruitless assault on the Cerro Prieto. This was Galvez's last effort as a general in the field, for he now became incapacitated through ill health. Galvez's first serious illness occurred in August. Believing that he was about to die, he wrote to Croy on the 22nd, reiterating his feelings of personal friendship for the viceroy and commending his subordinate officers to the latter's attention. Yet, the greater part of his letter concerned the expeditions to Alta California. It is at least interesting that what Galvez expected to be his dying request was a plea to Croy to protect the new establishments of San Diego and Monterey. He soon recovered, but periodically broke down, and at last, in the middle of October, his mind gave way altogether. From that time, until the end of the following March, he was rarely in sound mental condition. His faithful secretaries, Arguello, Armona, Azanza, Belena, and Viniegra, tried to conceal the nature of his disease, 
but it was noised abroad in spite of them. Temporarily, too, the affairs of Sonora received a setback, for nobody but Galvez had authority to execute certain decisions, and he was no longer able to do so. In this emergency, three of the secretaries, Arguela, Azanza, and Viniegra, felt it incumbent upon them to inform the viceroy that Galvez had met with civil death. There can be no doubt that they were acting for the best interests of the service in doing this, and that they were personally devoted to the visitador. Thus, in contemporary letters to one another, there are the most sincere expressions of sorrow over the condition of their dearly beloved father and illustrious chief, who seemed to have lost that which in other times had caused wonder in all who had consulted him, or, in the somewhat plainer words of Armona, is beautiful reason. Nevertheless, when the visitador was restored to health, he turned vindictively upon his former devoted friends and companions, to whose care he undoubtedly owed his life, because they had reported his illness to the viceroy, who had in turn mentioned it in his correspondence with the court. The three secretaries were deprived of their employment and thrown into prison, where they were visited by another of the visitador secretaries, who demanded that they retract their statements about Galvez's loss of reason. For several years they were made thus unjustly to suffer. It is perhaps poetic justice that Galvez's ungenerous act should have rebounded upon himself, for in their endeavors to clear themselves the secretaries furnished indisputable proofs of Galvez's malady. One of the secretaries, Ozanza, made his formal entry as viceroy thirty years later in the very town where Galvez had imprisoned him. While the visitador was bereft of reason, he exhibited a most extraordinary megalomania. This appears from the account of Viniegra, who supplied it in response to commands of the higher authorities. Quote, saying nothing, as he put it, about those incidents that may offend the ears and that are not needed to prove the nature of his misfortune. Unquote. Referring to Galvez's first burst of insanity in October 1769, Viniegra says, quote, On this day, with all clearness, he displayed the solemn upsetting of his understanding, calling to Sergeant Major Don Matias de Armona at two o'clock in the morning to tell him that Don Francisco de Assis, St. Francis, had just brought him some papers by which he had learned of the ignorance of the officers in the war that was being waged against the Indian enemies. As for the Indians, he was going to destroy them in three days, for merely by bringing six hundred apes from Guatemala, dressing them as soldiers, and making them run around the Cerro Prieto, he would easily cause the enemies within a distance of many leagues to flee. After this ridiculous sally, he came out of his room and went to the barracks, where there were nearly a thousand men. He shook hands with them and asked them to be his comrades and friends, inviting them to share in the treasure of the expedition, and in fact he gave a verbal order at the treasury to give every soldier as much money as he should ask for. And this was done in some cases, when it was found necessary to suspend this measure immediately, for the house of the treasurer had transformed itself into that of a grand jubilee, 
jubileo plenissimo. We went to dinner, and in the space of two hours, he said two thousand mad things in the presence of many officers of rank and their dependents. Among other things, he said that if anyone should make comment upon his measures, he would put his head at the feet and burn it on a pyre, without excepting Colonel Don Domingo Elizondo, who was present, from this preposterous design. He asserted that our lord the king had already ordered the removal from the Guia de Forasteros, Guide for Strangers, the entry about the Supreme Council of the Camara Chamber of the Indies, putting this clause in place of all that respectable body. Council and Camara of the Indies, the Visitador General of New Spain. End quote. On another occasion, says Viniegra, quote, he called himself and held himself to be the king of Prussia, Charles Twelfth of Sweden, the protector of the House of Bourbon, a counselor of state, deputy of the Admiral of Spain, an immortal, and, though it seemed impossible, St. Joseph, the venerable Palafox, and, what is more than all, the Eternal Father and an infinity of other persons with whose character at every moment he invested himself wishing to perform the functions corresponding to them, even to the celebrating of the final judgment by means of the divine word. Among other things that Viniegra details, we find Galvez making a cast, Mestizo, governor of Sonora, and investing him with the staff of office. He made Teodoro de Croix, nephew of the Marquez de Croix, viceroy of New Spain, and Armona, commandant-general of the new commandancy. He wrote reams of orders and decrees, according to the solicitations of anybody who asked for them. He ordered heads cut off, including that of the viceroy. He planned a canal from Mexico City to Wymas for ships of deep drop. He gave decorations, titles of nobility, bishoprics, and even empires with a lavish hand. He set fire to his room and burned his clothing, and then appeared naked in the window to preach to the Indians, assuring them that he was the Emperor Montezuma and that the Christian faith contained only two articles, belief in Our Lady of Guadalupe and in Montezuma. And he wrote numerous papers, one of which he signed in his own hand, quote, Jose de Galvez, insane for this unhappy world, Pray God for him that he may be happy in the next. Unquote. It is small wonder that the projects of the Visitador were not greatly furthered by his own presence in Sonora. Indeed, many things were delayed or left undone, for, sane or crazy, Galvez was still Visitador and deputy of the Viceroy, and his signed documents were a difficult factor for his subordinates to get around. Toward the end of March, Galvez was able to leave Sonora for Mexico. He went by way of Chihuahua, which he reached on March 30, 1770, and got to Mexico City late in May or early in June. Meanwhile, events were occurring on the frontier which in fact tended toward doing away with the obstacles to an advance to the Gila and Colorado and beyond them to Monterey. One of these was the inspection of the frontier presidios by the Marques de Rubí. The Spanish authorities had frequently, in the past, shown that they understood the necessity of dealing with the frontier as a whole, 
as witness the already cited memorial of the Marques de Altamira in 1751, for warfare in one province inevitably involved the others. The Secretary of the Indies, Julian de Arriaga, seems to have reached this conclusion when he sent Ruby to the frontier to inspect the entire system of the presidios. Ruby was commissioned in 1765 and took up his work in January 1766. In the next two years, he traversed the frontier from Texas to Sonora, even visiting the New Mexico salient. In his report of April 10, 1768, he recommended the forming of a line of 17 presidios from Sonora to Texas. At the same time, seven other presidios and two provincial companies then in existence were to be dropped. This became a governmental program during the next eight years, arousing great hopes for a forthcoming pacification of the frontier. Though these hopes were destined to be vain, they encouraged the authorities to take action looking toward the long-delayed northwestward conquests. Furthermore, much real work was accomplished after 1771 to establish the system recommended by Ruby. The number of presidios on the line was cut down to 15, but certain others off the line, including two in southern Sonora, though it was intended to dispense with them as soon as possible, were to be retained, at least temporarily. By an appointment of December 4, 1772, Hugo O'Connor became Commandant Inspector of the Frontier Provinces to establish the line. Subject only to the Viceroy, he ruled there during the next four years and did creditable work in reducing the ills from which those provinces suffered. Following Galvez's incapacity from illness in October 1769, Elizondo again took charge of the campaign in Sonora. He at once instituted methods that were to serve the purpose to much better effect than the general attacks had done. Dividing his troops into small detachments, he caused them to wage an incessant guerrilla warfare against the Indians, so that they had no time to search for food or gain sufficient rest. By gifts and cajolery, too, other groups were persuaded to lay down their arms. All had submitted by May 1771. At last the war, for the time being, was over. The original plan for a descent upon Nueva Vizcaya was abandoned, and in the fall of 1771, Elizondo and most of his men returned to Mexico. One obstacle to the advance to the Gila and Colorado now seems to have been diminished, if not removed. Coincident with the termination of the military campaign, an event occurred which served better than bullets to make for peace. While pursuing a band of Indians in 1771, a detachment of Elizondo's army discovered the rich gold placer of Cieneguilla near Altar. Vast quantities of gold were found near the surface. There was an immediate rush to the scene, and within a few months of the discovery, over 2,000 men had reached there. Unlike the Arizonac mine of other days, Cieneguilla continued to yield richly for a decade, and other mines in the neighborhood were worked to the end of the century and later. At about the same time, mines were discovered in other parts of Sonora. Huerta, on the Yaqui River, was particularly rich. Between 1772 and 1776, it was the most flourishing place in the province. 
Indeed, the revenues of Cienguila and Huerta at this time were sufficient between them to support the entire province. Even the Indian-infested Primeria district had been able to yield a profit of 77,277 pesos in 1770, before the discovery of the Cienguila mines. Footnote. The value of the peso in cash was 50 cents. The purchasing power, however, was surely double that much as measured by present-day standards, at the very least. In footnote. The troubles of Sonora as regard Indian wars, especially on the part of the Apaches, were not at an end, but from this time forth there was a sufficiently great civilized population to ward off actual dangers, if not the fear of them. Meanwhile, important action had been taken directly affecting the discovery of a route from Sonora to Monterey. The Franciscans were eager to make a good showing in Primeria Alta, to which they had succeeded in 1768, following the expulsion of the Jesuits. Therefore, there was a renewal of northward explorations and of projects for converting the Indians of the Gila and even those as far away as Moqui. Preeminent among the Queretarian friars of Primeria Alta was a man whose achievements should be written large in history of exploration, Father Francisco Garces. Although the principal object in his journeys of exploration was the saving of souls, for in him apostolic zeal burned with an ardor comparable with that of his great predecessors in the Franciscan order, his results were of vast importance from the standpoint of plans for frontier advance. Garces took up his ministry in San Javier del Bac in June 1768. In August, he started on the first of his tours of exploration, going through Papagueria, in the extreme northwest of Sonora, to the Gila. In 1769, he seems to have made an unimportant tour as chaplain. In 1770, he went forth again, between October 19th and November 2, from Bach to and along the Gila. On this journey, he traveled among the Pimas of the Gila and the Opas, both of whom gave him a friendly reception. He reported that the Pimas were particularly worthy and were clamorous for the missionaries that he had promised when he visited them in 1768. They were far from being a savage people, had good fields of wheat and maize, and knew of God. The Opas were a much ruder, if equally kindly, people. This exploration added fresh evidence of the accessibility of Alta California from Sonora, for the Pimas were much excited over accounts of people seen in the West the previous year. These they described in such a way that Garces realized they were referring to the soldiers of the 1769 expeditions to Alta California. A much more important journey was made by Garces from August to October 1771, and the information that he gained had great influence on the opinion of the junta which eventually recommended Anza's first expedition. This journey, too, more than any other, helped to determine the route of the subsequent expeditions. The details of the diary as to Garces's route might well have been very confusing to the junta, due to the fact that Garces mistook the Colorado for the Gila. In reality, he went through Papagueria to the Gila, 
reaching it just above its junction with the Colorado, whither he was desirous of going. He went on past the junction of the rivers, without realizing he had done so, and then traveled west and south along the Colorado, thinking he was on the Gila, and would in that way reach the junction. He crossed the Colorado, believing that he was crossing the Gila, and came upon a vast lagoon which he took to be the Colorado. He returned to the Colorado and ascended almost to the junction again, without realizing how near he was to the place that he sought. Thence he returned through Papagueria. During his wanderings, he visited and named many of the villages west of the Colorado, and reached the very canyon by which Anza's expedition was to make its way through the mountains. He had also journeyed west to the Gila Mountains and Papagueria, being the first known explorer to take that route along which he later guided Anza. Of the obstacles impeding an advance in 1752, all but the Apaches and the disorders of the eastern provinces seem now to have been cleared away. The Apaches, indeed, threatened the best of the routes to the northwest, from Tubac to the Gila and down that river to the Colorado, but it was hoped that a new line of presidios would soon take care of them. There were minor uprisings in Sonora, too, after the end of Elizondo's campaign, but though at times in the next decade the situation seemed very bad, it never again got out of hand. If a desire for northwestward conquest still remained, and if capable leaders could be found, this seemed to be the moment when the much-planned forward movement should take place. The desire for an advance had long existed, and now that Alta California had been occupied in a precarious and unsubstantial way, it was imperative that an overland route should be found. Fortunately, too, the right sort of leaders were at hand. One of them was the already mentioned pioneer explorer Father Garces. Another was the captain of the Presidio of Tubac, Juan Bautista de Anza, under whose command the route to Monterey was to be discovered and utilized. In the background, there was a third figure, greater than either, greater even than the visitador, and certainly a more noble character. This was the man who, in 1771, succeeded Croy as viceroy, Antonio Maria Bucarelli y Ersua. In Bucarelli, the struggling province in the far northwest was to find the greatest hero who has ever appeared in the field of California history. Footnote. This chapter is based principally on the already cited works of Priestley and Chapman. End of footnote. End of chapter 18.